0: This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Heartland Daily Podcast. I'm Lenny Jarrett project manager with the Heartland Institute and host of today's edition of the podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Rich Vetter. Dr. Vetter is a Heartland policy advisor on economics and the author of several books, including his latest book, Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. Dr. Vetter received his PhD in economics from the University of Illinois And he's been a senior economist at the U.S. Joint Economic Committee and visiting fellow at the Center for the Study of American Business at Washington University. And he has taught at the University of Colorado, Claremont Men's College, and MARA Institute of Technology. Welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Vetter. Glad to be with you. So you wrote this book about restoring the promise on higher education. So what is the current state of higher education?
1: Well, higher education uh, has its good points and bad points, or as Dickens put it at the beginning of the tale of uh, two cities, these are the best of times, these are the worst of times. They're the best of times in that we probably have the best system of higher education of any nation in the world. We have people come from all over the world to the U.S. to be educated at university levels. We are... Uh, well-known as uh, on any list of the top 100 universities in the world. We have at least half of them are American. So that's the good news. The bad news is that higher education is suffering from a lot of problems, one of which is it's become too costly. Another one of which is, uh, and this is a dirty little secret that doesn't get talked about very much, but I don't think kids are learning a lot these days, uh, which is a pretty damning uh, criticism. Uh, and uh, it, finally, uh, the Coupe de grâce is, it used to be thought of higher ed, uh, a college degree was a ticket to a surefire middle-class life, a good job. And while that still holds in some cases, uh, it's a risky thing going to college these days. A lot of uh, students are, uh, who graduate are what we call underemployed. They're not uh, getting jobs uh, the, the, of the type that college graduates have typically gotten. They've, they're taking jobs at high school grads, uh, bartenders, janitors, uh, jobs like that. So there's quite a few problems out
0: there. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, speaking of college grads that are kind of un, uh, underemployed, basically, what kind of, what is really kind of the background that you see as kind of causing that? Well, I think, in a sense, we've become over-invested in
1: higher education. Now, the, you know, that sounds like a terrible thing to say. And by the way, I have been a college professor for 54 years. I'm teaching this fall for the 55th year at my university in Ohio. So I, uh, I've been around the block a few times uh, in, these, in this area. But we have had a mantra that goes back and uh, university presidents and even American presidents, Obama in particular comes to mind, everyone needs to go to college. The goal will be to get, have, raise the, uh, the percentage of Americans with college degrees to a record level and all of this. And so we kept pushing this, and that, that's fine. We, we do need some college graduates. It would be awful if we didn't have college graduates. Uh, there are a lot of technical jobs that require people with a, a good bit of education, but we have uh, overdone it. We uh, uh, need people to uh, work in ho- home health care jobs. We need people to work in... Uh, home depot or walmart or places like that as cashiers we need janitors to mop the floors we need a lot of jobs and we actually these days are having more shortages in those kind of jobs than in the uh, jobs that traditionally college uh, graduates have filled uh we have uh Probably have over-invested, literally had too many people get college degrees It should have perhaps gone to technical schools, perhaps uh, uh, gone to vocational ed programs in high school and gone on from there without a college degree.
0: You're talking about that, uh, we're over-investing, we're sending too many kids to college, stuff like that. What other reasons of, you know, kind of how did we get here? What made people think they all needed to go to college? Kind of. Well, one thing that is important in this, and one thing
1: that induced kids to go to college was the federal government came along about 50 years ago and said, uh, gee, uh, one, going to college is a good thing, two, we want to help you go to college and we're going to make money available to you to go to college. Uh, you'll have to pay it back. That's what we told them. Doesn't always happen, but right. that's what we told them. And uh, we'll ha- charge you a very low interest rates on federally guaranteed student loans. And we also did some other things. We had put in Pell Grant programs and some other things, but the big thing was the student loan program. That program is the best example of anything I can think of of what I call the law of unintended consequences. (laughs) Because what we were trying to do at the time we started it was help low-income kids gain access to college who couldn't afford it. Well, it's turned out to really have almost the opposite effect of what was intended because colleges... Saw that, ooh, the kids can borrow money now. We can raise our fees pretty aggressively. Instead of raising them 1, 2, or 3% a year, let's raise them 4, 5, 6, 7% a year. And that's exactly what they did for 40 years. And if you compound something for 40 years, a high rate of interest for 40, 40 years, you get huge increases in prices. Definitely. And that is what happened. So now, the irony of ironies is the percentage of low income kids graduating from college is a smaller percentage of college <laughs> graduates than it was in 1970 before all this started. Because college kids, I mean, poor kids, low income kids, see these monstrously high tuition fees and they get scared. And the college counselors will tell them, well, look, at come and we'll discount that. We'll give you a deal. We'll get you scholarships and so forth. But the kids see sticker prices at a typical state school, even for in-state tuition of maybe $10,000, $14,000 a year. Uh, uh, and then they have to add uh, other costs, of books and so forth, maybe even a room and board and get up $25,000, 30000 a year. Uh, and they just say, Oh, I can't afford that. And, and and they say, well, the counselors will tell them, the high school guidance counselors will tell them, you should do it anyway. Well, before you can even apply, you got to fill out a federal form. It's 120 questions long, called the FASFA form. It, it You need a PhD, practically, to fill out the form. The and, or you need a, a CPA or someone with a lot of uh, uh background of uh county background and so uh we have utterly failed in the way we approach uh this problem
0: <laughs> yeah so you know when you talk about the the basic the free government money has been one of the biggest drivers in increasing tuition costs what other factors have caused tuition costs to rise besides that have been other is there have there been other factors yeah along the, with that? yeah even uh before these federal
1: programs started the cost of college was going up a little bit faster than the overall inflation rate. And, and there is an argument that has a, a, a little bit of truth to it. I think it's less true now than it used to be, that college, it, 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 this is a labor-intensive service industry, uh, and it's pretty hard to substitute professors or teachers to uh, with machines, it's hard to put a machine in there to do what a professor did. Whereas, a, in a say an automobile production plan or some other in a, a manufacturing generally, we have used machines to replace labor, and we have been able to lower uh, cost, improve productivity, more more output for any one worker. That has not happened in higher, ed. in fact, the reverse has happened. Uh, we actually have more people working at colleges and universities for any given number of students than we did 40 years ago. A lot of it's administrative bloat that's happened. Uh, colleges have gone on a spending spree of hiring administrators of various kind who don't teach, they don't do research, and uh, darned if I know what they do, but uh, <laughs> they're just a pain in the butt as far as I'm <laughs> yeah. concerned uh, as, as a professor and nearly every professor I know at any college, at any quality, degree of any quality you want to pick will agree uh, that we've gone way, way overboard in hiring uh, non-instructional staff. So we have this problem, and some of that predates even the student loan program, but i uh, uh, it has been worsened by the
0: uh, uh, the student loan program, right? And some of the stuff I think I've seen that has caused the increase in administrators—the same you see in K twelve—is the regulations. So there's more paperwork now that the colleges and universities have to fill out, which gives them the ability. Okay, we got to hire more administrators to deal with this.
1: Yeah, there's no question. Uh, uh, in before I started studying uh, higher ed intensely, I was. On a public school board, and I looked at uh, these issues at the K through 12 level as well, and there is some, some similarity there, and there, is been an inc- there has been an increase in regulation. There's no question, but I think that's only part of the administrative bloat uh, is explained by that, but it is part of it, yes.
0: Right. Well, when they have extra money, they're going to spend the money. Yeah. <laughs> that's... In
1: fact, that's one of the theories about higher ed. There's a guy named Bowen who had Bowen's law or Bowen's revenue theory, which says that colleges will spend whatever number of dollars they have. They'll spend every penny they have. <laughs> and, uh, that's pretty much the case. So... I, and, uh, you know, oh, they'll temporarily save a little squirrel a few bucks away. uh, and some years, they'll spend a little more than they take in. But over the long haul, they try to spend every cent they, they get. And there's very, very few incentives in higher ed to... Uh, Try to cut costs. Yeah. It's kind of like
0: almost all other taxing bodies that do the same thing. If they have the money, they're going to spend it. And if they don't have the money, they're still going to spend it. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> you you got it, Letty. <laughs> so th- this whole cost of tuition and rising tuition, I can see what you're saying, but the low income kids not wanting to go to college because they can see the debt load, and we have seen this over and over again. There's so many calls right now for free college and r- forgiveness of lo- debt when that seemed, appears to be based on what you're saying as caused by the government increasing tuition, which has increased the debt load for these students to have to repay. Yeah, there's no question. Now,
1: uh, there's nothing that gets me more excited than talk about free college because I think that the worst thing we could do, the absolute worst thing we could do is make a bad problem worse by saying, all right, people, you don't have to repay your loans. The government will do it for you. Now, mind you, the federal government runs a $900 billion deficit at a time of under 4% unemployment. Yep. Uh, we have a crisis that's building in this country, and when it's going to blow up, I don't know, but it is going to blow up sometime unless we change our ways. And this would simply just add to that problem but in addition, think of all the people who do pay back their student loans. And a majority of people ultimately do pay back their student loans. What about those people who work hard, go out, put 200 $400, $500 a month, whatever it takes aside each month in order to pay back the interest as well as the principal on those loans? And now we say to the, those who didn't do that, some of them who could have done it but chose not to, they right. went out and bought a new car, they went out, took vacations, they went out and did other things. For those people, we'll say, you don't have to pay your loans back anymore. Free, you know, college is free for you. Well, that is craziness in my and the height
0: of irresponsibility, I think. Yeah, it really is. So we've done a lot of discussing about what's wrong with college and higher education. How do we fix it? Well,
1: uh, I was afraid you were
0: going to ask me that question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's easier to identify the problems than to solve them. That's for sure. Now, now if I were a czar or a, a, a. there's a guy I met once who you name you've heard of called Vladimir Putin. I, <laughs> yeah. I drank vodka with him once in the Kremlin. If I were Vladimir Putin where I could probably do a lot of things that in America with a democracy you can't do. Right. I might be able to come up with some pretty effective solutions, but a lot of them are blocked by political factors. There's just no question about it. Uh the worst thing that ever happened to higher ed was the federal government increasing its control, its involvement in it. The, even the Department of Education was a disaster, in my opinion, and in the area of higher ed. I think probably in, in the area of K- K-12, too. K- yes. K- 12 too. Uh, 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 I uh, talk about this. I've actually looked at the legislative history. The Department of Education, uh, when it the bill that passed it, uh, the, the Democrats controlled everything at the time. Jimmy Carter was president. They had a huge majority in the House to represent The bill to, for the uh, Department of Education made it through the House Education Committee by a rousing 20 to 19 vote <laughs> with seven Democrats voting against it. <laughs> and the New York Times was even against it. We, you know, you can't get much more liberal than the New yeah, York Times. Really? And uh, so... Um, it was recognized at the time that this intrusion in one of the strengths of American higher ed is the diversity of it, the fact that we have thousands of different schools doing different things, providing a competitive environment, providing different choice, choices for people. And the Department of Education has kind of homogenized that and reduced that. Right. So that's a problem. That's one thing we should do away with. I haven't really answered your question. We should get rid of the – the federal government should get out of the lending business. That's, oh, uh,
0: definitely. That's that's, that's a, I mean, yes. that's
1: the first thing I would do. I mean, if I could do one thing and only one thing only, that would be – uh, at the state and local level maybe uh, for example why do state governments give money to universities why don't they give it to the kids why don't they give it to the why do they give it to the providers of the educational services rather than the consumers the consumers are the one who may, are able to make the most informed choices, and it would in in, in introduce more competition and uh, more efficiency, I think, into the system. It would. to do to do it that way. Well, it was the same thing where we've been talking about in K through 12 for years about vouchers and scholarships and uh, 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 tax credits and so forth. Uh, same thing could apply in higher ed. No reason why it shouldn't.
0: Yeah, it absolutely should. I mean, that really is. We come back to, oh, it's always government money, and they like to give money to the adults instead of to the kids that are trying to learn. Yeah, (laughs) so uh, that'd be one quick change I'd make. What about, like, um, I know you mentioned in your book about ending monopolies. Can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Well... There, there's a lot of element of monopoly. First of all, when a kid goes to college, once they're accepted at the college, and once they start taking classes, that college, in a sense, has a monopoly over that kid. That kid is taking courses from one school, all of their classes, traditionally. Now, that right. that could change. We could, we could do it differently, but that's the way we do it now. So the school has a monopoly. So you... They tell the kid, you have to eat in our cafeteria. And uh, I have a lot of evidence that The prices that the kids are uh, charged for food are outrageous by (laughs) national standards. Uh, You have to sleep in our dormitories. That's outrageous, too, the amount of money they're being charged for that. They're being ripped off. So there's a lot of monopoly at that level. But there's another level of monopoly, and that is part of it's brought about by the accreditation system, Uh, We have uh, colleges, in order to get this federal money, uh, uh, loan money that the students provide them, in order to get it, they have to be, quote, accredited. Right Now, accreditation is a scandal in this country. It is absolutely (laughs) a scandal. It's probably a scandal at the K through 12 level, but it is a certifiable disaster at the higher ed level. And... One of the things that it does, and I, we could spend a, a half hour talking about accreditation, and we don't have that time, but one thing that it does is it is a barrier to entry for people who yes. have new ideas of doing things. Yep. Instead of saying, I, instead of, I'm, I don't want to provide a degree for the kids. I want to just sell them courses and let them take courses from 20 different schools and put them together and package them together and make a degree. You can't do in this in this country, partly because of accreditation rules, right. because we accredit schools, but not courses. That's just one little thing. I could yep. go on and on and on. So innovation is stifled. Who controls the accreditors? The universities. Yep. It's a massive conflict of interest, a yep. massive conflict of
0: interest. Yeah, and they keep it very regionalized in a very small group of, of people that can actually do the accreditation, too, oh, which yeah. makes it even worse. Oh,
1: yeah. It's crazy. We have six regional accreditors. Why six regional? Why not one national accreditor? I could go on and on and on about this. Uh, The national accreditation people uh, don't like me very much, so uh, (laughs) uh, uh, I need a bodyguard when I speak to their groups.
0: Is there any way that we could actually force the universities to have any skin in the game so they have to actually start changing? Sure. Uh, there are some things uh, we could do. One
1: thing that's getting some attention now, and I think actually might have a little bit of a chance of actually getting adopted by our, if I may say so, somewhat dysfunctional uh, federal government, uh, is the idea of skin in the game. Uh Why don't we say to colleges that, well, if you take a lot of kids in who uh, flunk out, don't graduate, and then later on don't pay back their loans and are delinquent, causing the taxpayers a, a lot of grief and a lot of financial burden, well, we'll make the colleges pick up some of them. We'll make them <laughs> co-sign on the loan. I right. mean, it's the equivalent of what in the private sector would be called co-signing on a loan. Right. And if we did that, I suspect some of the colleges would get become a little more careful about uh, yeah. which kids they uh, uh, talk into borrowing large sums of money uh, to go to college. They so that's one, that's one thing we could do. It'd be very simple. And uh, there seems to be some growing support for that idea.
0: Yeah, that sounds like that would actually be one of those that would really start to have an effect because they always complain about money, and if they have to start paying back some of those loans, they're not going to have the money. That's that's right. (laughs) So is there a chance the government can actually fix the problem, or is it really going to take parents, students, and somebody from outside forces to actually force the changes? Well, I completely believe that, higher ed
1: will be reformed from the outside more than the inside. Universities and colleges, for all their political liberalism and progressivism, and that's a subject for another conversation, uh, but putting that aside, they're very conservative in the sense that they don't like to change. They don't like to change the way they do things. We teach the same way we taught 40, 50 years ago. Uh, or 500 years ago, or when Socrates taught 20, uh, yeah. 500 years ago, for that matter, pretty much the same. Uh, we, uh, it's the change has got to come from the outside, uh, but the trouble is the outside is usually perceived to be government, and well, government itself is not a very good reformer. But we do need uh, uh, to move. T- To have uh, people other than the university folks themselves uh, push the universities in uh, the appropriate direction.
0: Cool. All right. I know we've talked about a wide range of stuff today, but is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on? Well,
1: there's dozens of issues, Lenny, and uh, we don't have time to get them all. For example, just one. I'll just mention one. I won't talk about it, but. Intercollegiate athletics in the Mm. United States has become something of a scandal. It's very costly. Uh, It has caused some uh, true scandals. Uh, uh, It's led to exploitation of young people, some would argue. Uh, uh, There's uh, unfortunately something of a racial dimension to that as well. Uh, It's something that the nation needs to address, and um, uh, that's something we haven't had time to talk about. But right. it's worth
0: a, a full discussion on by itself. It really is, and that's actually some of the athletics played into part with the with the recent scandal with some of the elite Hollywood elites and some a- of the ex- rich oh, yeah. scamming the system to get in and using s- athletic scholarships to kind of circumvent the system as well. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. So, Dr. Vetter, if our listeners want to connect with you or they want to buy your book, how can they do that?
1: Well, uh, they uh, can uh, do it in a whole variety of ways. It's published by the Independent Institute, and they can go to the Independent Institute website. They can go on to their favorite uh, uh, online bookseller Uh uh, I notice uh, uh, Amazon is actually discounting it somewhat from the uh, list price. Uh, the, the, the they can do it any of a variety of ways, and uh, it's uh, 400 pages of reading. And uh, I tell some people it might help them sleep better at <laughs> night. It, it's it's not uh, it's not a, a pornographic novel or anything with a lot of titillation in it. But it does talk about a lot of these issues in some depth.
0: Yeah, and I think it will actually make a bunch of people angry when they find out what's really going on in higher education yeah, I, as
1: well. I, that's yeah, I expect you're right, and <laughs> indeed I hope it. Yes, you're indeed. right. I hope you're right.
0: Unfortunately, people sometimes have to get angry to actually get motivated to actually start doing things, which yeah. is kind of a shame that they have to do that. So, Dr. Vetter, I'm glad you're able to join join me today, and I want to thank you on behalf of the Heartland Institute and our listeners. So, Thank you for being here. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. Please check out Heartland's website, heartland.org, as we continue to track education issues across the country in both K-12 and higher education. And make sure to go to our PolicyBot website, your one-stop shop for free market solutions to public policy problems. And if you're hearing one of these podcasts for the first time, make a point to subscribe to our daily podcast And thank you so much for joining us, and make sure to have a great day. It's back. The Heartland Institute is hosting the 13th International Conference on Climate Change on July 25th in Washington, D.C. at the Trump International Hotel. This is the most important climate conference of 2019, featuring the world's best scientists, economists, and policy experts who will present the latest data and information showing that humans are not Causing a climate crisis. Tickets are available now, but space is limited, so don't delay. Our keynote meal sessions will include at least one prominent member of the Trump administration, a leader of the historic Solidarity Polish Labor Union, who has had it with climate alarmism in Europe and the latest round of the Climate Change Awards. Other featured speakers include prominent scientists Roy Spencer, David Legates, a Trump transition leader for EPA, Myron Ebel, and Anthony Watts, founder of the most red climate site in the world. What's up with that? This Visit heartland.org for more information and get your tickets today.